to begin with a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to know you and we want to know your ways. We want to be able to look at the developing situation in our world today and be able to look at it through Bible eyes, through Bible lenses, and see your hand. And we know that you are Lord of all things, and we ask that you would shepherd us through this material tonight, all to your praise. We ask this of you, good shepherd, good rabbi Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, let me just give you a quick orientation. Uh, we completed the book of Daniel at our last session, and... If we were doing this in a super orderly way, <laughs> we would be going to Matthew 24 and 25, and then the 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and then into the book of Revelation. But because I am doing Matthew on Sunday mornings, and we're about five, six weeks away from Matthew 24 and 25 anyways, we're going to skip over that, jump right to the book of Revelation, and let me simply say, give you a basic understanding of the... Uh, way the book of Revelation unfolds. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So this is a revelation given to God the Son by God the Father of what the God the Son will be doing. It is a revelation given to Jesus, but it really is an expression of what he, Jesus, the Lord of all things, the one who was received when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he received all authority, all power in heaven and on earth. He received the right to rule in the creation, particularly on this earth. And so what we will be seeing in the book of Revelation is Jesus' rule exercised and carried out as he brings the human race into submission to himself. Brings them into the kingdom promised many, many, many times in the Hebrew scriptures through the Hebrew prophets. And we're going to see how this works out. And of course, the, the vast majority of the book of Revelation has to do with what will take place in that seven-year period that we've already looked at in Daniel. This is the 70th week, the 70th seven of Daniel, this last seven-year segment. And that's what we find here in the book of Revelation for the most part, beginning really in chapter 4 through chapter 19 is the ongoing events in that seven-year period and how the Lord Jesus Christ will be, bring men and angels into submission to himself. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. Now, if you were to read straight through the book of Revelation, you would find in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus speaking to seven specific congregations the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those seven churches. And if you look at a map of the ancient Roman world, those cities are on a, a, a trade route, like in the shape of a horseshoe. They are the, that's the order that you would come to those cities if you were on that road. And that's the order. And John or an emissary from John will be taking this letter to each of those seven churches. They were the first ones to hear this book of Revelation. And as again, the open effect, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he, Christ, sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And one of the things we are going to see as John is ushered through this process, very often it is angels that are the one, his immediate uh, guides through the process. 
He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who, John, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. John is a faithful witness. By the way, this is being written in about 90, 91, somewhere between 90 and 93 A.D., about 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. John is the last surviving apostle. He was probably the youngest, and he's the last surviving apostle. And he is, as he writes this letter, he is actually on the island of Patmos, off what would be modern, the coast of modern-day Turkey, which is a penal colony. He's been sent there by the emperor because of his refusal to bow the knee to the emperor and worship the emperor. And so he's in a penal colony, and he is there on the island of Patmos when this experience comes to him. Oh, yes, well, that, yeah, they had tried to kill him by pouring boiling oil on him and failed, and so they sent <laughs> their surviving John, uh, probably ma a massive scars, out to this penal colony. And so he is going to write this all down, and then the, it's going to be carried to these seven churches and read to them. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, all things that he saw, blessed is he who reads. Now, we tend to think, you know, here we are all here, sitting here with Bibles in our laps, right? Okay, that was not the case in the early, they, the printing press hadn't been invented. Books were extremely expensive. Even a wealthy man might have a shelf three feet wide with some scrolls in it, but they're all hand copied. They're extremely expensive. Common people didn't have books. They could read, but they didn't own books. And so you would go to a public setting and someone would read to you and you would sit there and carefully listen while they read. And it was not, you know, here in our traditional church meetings, we have somebody reads a text and then preaches it. It would, it would have been very common for a common church meeting for someone to stand up and read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Read the Gospel of Matthew all in one event. That was how people learned, was they sat and listened to the reading of these books and so he says blessed is he who reads and those who hear and the picture in our minds it should come as if someone is standing up there with the scroll reading to a crowd blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it it's not enough to hear it you must keep it you must obey what you hear that's where the blessing comes from and then John, in the balance of chapter 1, he gives glory to God and, you know, grace to you from God the Father. And then he speaks of the Holy Spirit. Then he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in detail. And then he, see, he explains the vision that he had. Let me pick this up in chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, I have experienced tribulation, testing. I'm your companion in this kingdom, patience. That is the endurance of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why am I here? Because I faithfully, loyally presented God's word and testimony. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice. Let me stop for just a moment here. Typical commentary will say, I was in the Spirit on the first day of the week, because that, that's the Lord's day. In the entire New Testament, never is the first day of the week called the Lord's day. I think it makes much more sense. I was in the Spirit that as I was meditating about the day of the Lord. I was meditating about the day of the Lord, which is the Old Testament expression for the coming 
kingdom. The day of the Lord in the Hebrew prophets is when God initiates his kingdom. And so here is John, a prepared vessel. What's he meditating on? I am thinking about that king promised kingdom that is to come. And suddenly what happens? I hear behind me a loud voice. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And as I indicated, this is the order you would come to these cities and towns on the trade route. And each one of them has a congregation. Then I, John, turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, their favorite term for Messiah, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This is priestly garments. In the, the Levitical priests, the high priest in particular, he wore a, this beautiful robe and he had a band of gold and it was actually gold thread woven through the fabric. But Jesus has a band of gold around his chest. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. These, are, these feet are like the, he's been through the test. He's been tested. As if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I mean, I could hardly look at him. It was like looking straight into the sun. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, which you've already seen just now, and the things which are, which occupies chapters 2 and 3, because Jesus is going to address the issues in these seven churches, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And that's chapter 4, verse 1 to the end. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now some, honestly, I'm not sure where to go with this. Some want to interpret this, well, the angels, well, you know, that's the pastors. That's the church. Mm, I think <laughs> that actually each congregation has an angel that has power and authority in the functioning of that congregation. The, the seven stars which are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So here Jesus is standing in this, as, G, as John described him, but he's got seven lamps of fire around him and he holds the seven stars in his right hand the angels are the seven stars and the lamps are the co seven congregations that he will be addressing in chapters two and three and then as i s and so he says in chapter two verse one to the angel of the church at ephesus right and then he addresses the church at ephesus and on through chapter three these seven churches 
we are not going to go into the details of these chapters. Now, what I will probably do, please hold my feet to the fire on this because I, 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 I forget things. When I finish Matthew, remind me that I promised to do the seven churches of Revelation, okay? But we're going to skip that right now. But let me point something out to you. Here in chapter 1 and in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you find the word church used 19 times. You find the church the word church used one more time in the book of Revelation, and that's at the very end when Jesus is again addressing the initial readers of the book. The word church disappears from the book of Revelation. Why? I'm going to suggest to you because, in fact, the church will be yanked off the earth, and this is what we're going to get to in Matthew 24 and 25, and also First and Second Thessalonians, the rapture, which is the great catching up of the church, will take place. Matthew, excuse me, Jesus expresses it in Matthew 24 with these words. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. People will be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. It will be life as usual. But that does not describe the tribulation. Seven-year tribulation is anything but life as usual. You have massive catastrophes happening all over the earth. But Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, right up to the flood, life as usual, just like it was 100 years before or 50 years before. And two men will be working in the field. One will be taken and another left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, grinding grain at the mill. And one will be taken and another, another left. <coughs> you need to be watchful. Because I am coming as a thief. I, you know, thieves don't, burglars don't send you a postcard ahead of time saying, I'm going to show at your house, up at your house at 2 o'clock in the morning. They don't do that. They come unexpectedly, unannounced. I'm going to come. You need to be watchful. And you need, because I'm going to come when you're not expecting it, just like a thief. And you need to be sober. You need to be paying attention. And you need to be awake. The Apostle Paul, as we're going to see when we do, when we get to this, in 1 Thessalonians, says to the Thessalonians, who are upset because they've actually had people in their congregation die when they were expecting to be yanked out of their shoes at any moment. And he said, oh, either you weren't paying attention or I failed to mention in my prophetic seminar <laughs> that when the rapture happens, people will be yanked out of their graves not just out of their shoes and we will meet the lord we will be caught up and meet the lord in the air that's where we get the word rapture you don't find the word rapture in the bible but the word rapture is a latin based word meaning to be caught up and paul says in first first thessalonians 4 we will be caught up to meet the lord in the air therefore be watchful because he's going to come like a thief and you need to be awake exactly the same order that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Paul repeats in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and so on. So what's happening here? Revelation 2 and 3, you've got Jesus addressing these seven churches, and he uses the word church, 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 19 times. And then the word church disappears from the narrative until the very close when he's ad again addressing the initial readers. Why? Because the church has been caught up. And what also we're going to discover is that, and Paul discloses this to us in Romans, when Israel said, now, when the Jewish leadership were standing before Pilate, what did they say to him when he started to wash his hands? I don't want to have anything to do with this. I can't find any fault in this man. And the Jewish leadership and the crowd with them said, 
Let his blood be upon us and on our children. Big mistake. And what happened, and we're going to see this especially in Matthew's gospel, is in Paul explains it in Romans 11. God took Israel as that body of redeemed people through whom he was presenting himself to the world. Let's say you're a Syrian and you want to know the God of Abraham. Where are you going to go to find out about him? I think I'll go to Jerusalem. <laughs> And find out about him. I think I'll ask some Jewish rabbi. I think I'll, I'll inquire with the Jews. But what did they do? By their betrayal of their own Messiah, they disqualified themselves for use by God. And God temporarily, Paul will tell us in Romans 11, he temporarily shelved Israel as the body of redeemed people through whom he was presenting himself to the world and he created a new body of redeemed people called the church. Matthew, and again, Matthew's gospel is unique in this. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Matthew's gospel is the only gospel you find the word church. I will build my church. Two chapters later, chapter 18. If you have a problem with a brother, and you go to him, and he will not hear you, take it to the church. And if you will not hear them, the church should put him out. And then we find, just as we did today in, this, in the passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew 21, what does Jesus say to the Jewish leadership in the temple who will not heed him? This, this this right and responsibility to be, to be God's spokesman in this world is going to be taken away from you and given to another nation. Well, we're told by Paul in Ephesians 2 and 3 that God has created a new body of redeemed people called the church. This is the close of Ephesians 2. And he is the foundation of this new body of redeemed people is the apostles and prophets, meaning New Testament prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and we are the edifice being built on top of this. And this was a secret, he says in chapter 3. This was a mystery. It was a secret. It's not anywhere in the Old Testament. It was totally a new thing. And that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 and 3. We are this new nation, this new body redeemed people through whom God is temporarily presenting himself to the world until we're yanked out of here. And what's he going to do? He's going to revive Israel, restore Israel to its place. And on day one of the tribulation, two men show up in the temple. Moses and Elijah. The very close of the, you know, Elijah never died. Elijah was taken up in a chair in a whirlwind accompanied by a chariot to heaven. Moses did die, but his body was caught up to heaven. And who is it that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration before the apostles? Moses and Elijah. And these two witnesses will appear in the temple and they will start calling down plagues and judgments on Israel and the surrounding nations trying to drive Israel and the surrounding nations to repentance. And that's what we find. The church is gone. The church is taken up. This mystery body that is right now being used by God to disclose himself to the world is going to be taken out. Israel is going to be restored to its former place. And here is the representative of the law and the prophets. The supreme prophet of all prophets is Elijah. And they're going to be in the temple calling down play. And nobody can touch them, as we will see as we go into the book of Revelation. They cannot be harmed for three and a half years, no matter who comes against them. And so this is what we find. Chapters 2 and 3 is Jesus addressing the church and their issues, these seven churches, they're in Asia Minor. But we're going to jump right now to chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, after Jesus had addressed these seven issues in these seven churches, 
After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, well, the first voice that he heard was Jesus' voice in chapter 1. The first voice that I heard was like a trumpet. What was the voice of Jesus like in chapter 1? A trumpet. Was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. All of a sudden, John is no longer on the island of Patmos, being addressed by this Jesus who is in this vision that he's having. He is suddenly caught up into heaven. And now this tracks with, uh, this is not the passage I would go to to prove the rapture, but it does track with the rapture. It's, it's, it says, come up here, and he's caught up into heaven. This is exactly the same expression that will be used in chapter 11 when those two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, are dead on the street of Jerusalem. And they're dead for three days. And the world is throwing a party because these two men who've been plaguing us all these years are dead and we're happy. Oh, we're so glad. And suddenly a voice speaks from heaven. Stand up. And they stand up. And their enemies see this happen. And then a voice from heaven says, come up here. Same exact expression. And their enemies watch them rise into the presence of God out of their reach. John, come up here. And suddenly, John just finds himself in the very throne room of God. Again, verse 2, 4 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, my New King James Version says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Now, the marginal reference says that it is more likely that it is an expression uh, of a description of the throne itself, not the one who sits on it, that the, thro the throne is like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the, thr at the throne in appearance like an emerald. When we see a rainbow, that's a testimony. A rainbow is a testimony of plenty. It's just rain. It's, it's something that is required for bounty has just taken place, and a rainbow is a promise. And here's a rainbow circling the throne of God. It is a place of great blessing. And the rainbow isn't like a standard rainbow. It actually leans toward being an emerald rainbow, which is green is the very picture. The color of the emerald is the very picture. Green is the, the color we associate with life and vitality. And this rain, it is a rainbow, but it is an emerald rainbow. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. These are human beings, elders, who are sitting on these thrones. Why are there 24 of them? My suggestion is they're representative of both Israel and the church. The church had 12 apostles. Israel had 12 tribes. And so these 24 elders are representative of both bodies of redeemed people 24 thrones 12 apostles 12 tribes of Israel and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads so they are reigning they have a crown isn't just a decoration it suggests authority and power that God has shared with them, hived off to them. Verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This is not, oh, hey, you know, this is pretty cool. No. <laughs> this is like his response when he turned and looked and saw Jesus. 
it is a, an incredibly overwhelming, powerful experience. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The number seven is a number of completeness. And this is, so here are these seven there is, you know, there is never a description of God the Holy Spirit. He is depicted as a dove coming. But, of course, God is invisible. I mean, that's one of the tra- attributes of God is invisibility. Now, here we see the Father on the throne, although there's actually no description of him. The only description, the closest we come to a description of God the Father, which we've already talked about in the book of Daniel, is when Daniel sees him seated with white hair on his throne. That's about it. (laughs) The only person of the Godhead who is given a description, a visual description, is God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here are seven lamps before the throne of God which depict the presence of the Spirit of God. Seven lamps of fire before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God, the the Spirit of God in all of His fullness. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now let me give you, uh, in the ancient world, (laughs) this is kind of an interesting thing. If you went into this typical throne room, like of the Persian Emperor, the Babylonian Empire, Emperor, Roman Emperor, there would be a section of the throne room before his throne that you did not step on. Now, partly this was to go, okay, he is going to always be distant from us. It was also a security arrangement. <laughs> And you did not step on that segment of the floor unless he held out his scepter to you. And then you were given permission to come close. And so we have here in the throne room of God. But it's not because you are a threat to God. It's because of the great measure of his holiness. It's because of the great measure of his holiness. Here is the pavement before the throne. There was a sea of glass like crystal. It's unlike any flooring you've ever seen before. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. I have a hard time even picturing these creatures. (laughs) They're covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf or an ox, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. What is stressed here? Number one, like a lion. We, what do we associate with a lion? We associate nobility. What do we associate with an ox? Strength. What do we associate with a man? I'm not sure how true to life this is, but we associate wisdom. I I saw the look of uh, skepticism there on that face. And fourth, the fourth living creature, like an eagle, speed, immediately present wherever it needs to be. Interestingly, in, the, in church history, some old Bibles or New Testaments, they will take these four figures and they will associate them with the four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Gospel of Mark is the Servant of the Lord. And you will see a lion face or figure on the first page of Matthew's Gospel, on the first page of Matthew. Mark's gospel, you will see that ox head. And, and Luke, the perfect man. And John, God. 
Messiah as God. Now, all of these Gospels contain those elements. But I'm just saying it's interesting that the early church picked up on those four figures and associated them with those four Gospels. And I'm not sure that that was illegitimate. I think there's a lot of legitimacy in that observation. But that's all it is, is an observation. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, we, they never stop. They never stop. They never stop. And you know, if we were talking about a human king or a human emperor, we go, Okay, enough is enough is enough. But not when it is the Creator God. You can never finish, <laughs> authentically finish, the worship that belongs to Him. And so it can go on and on and on, and it never becomes redundant or tiresome because it's every bit of it is legitimate. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. So they're doing this continually. And then this other event happens continually. They, they, as they are giving thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Whatever I have done to earn this crown, I throw it at your feet. I throw it at your feet. They, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, and this is very important to us in the book of Revelation. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. That is a very important verse because it justifies everything that God will do through his Son in the narrative that follows. He is the creator God. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he created all things. He is the creator God and it belongs to him. No one can say, how dare you to God. It's his. It belongs to him. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Nobody has an authentic right to call into question your demands for worship and obedience and conformity. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Well, I can give place to anybody who's sitting in this room because you all sat there and listened while we talked about Deuteronomy 32 and the book of Daniel. And we learned about the seals because six of the seven seals are right there in Daniel and excuse me, Deuteronomy 32 and the once the first seal is in Daniel, and so here, but here is the one seated on the throne with a scroll in his hand, and it is sealed with seven seals. This is the narrative of what is going to take place that will bring Israel to full restoration and the entire world to <coughs> the conformity to and worship of the true and living God. This scroll has the narrative, and it's sealed with seven seals. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll <coughs> written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders, one of these 24 elders, said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, the word translated here, prevailed, if you go back and read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, you will find Jesus speaking to the the saints in these seven churches, and he's telling them they are to be overcomers, overcomers, over to, to the one who overcomes, I will give this gift. To the one who overcomes, and all these rewards will be to, this is the same word that's been translated overcome in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus has prevailed. He has overcome to take the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He is worthy. And what was the great question? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Answer, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. He has overcome every obstacle to qualify himself to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals, to set in motion the events that will be fulfilled into, the, into a glorious kingdom and lead us to a glorious kingdom. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. So what did Jesus do? And it's right before our eyes. What did Jesus do to prevail? overcome what did he do when the father when God the father sent the son as the Nicene Creed accurately says Jesus Christ is true God of true God true man of true man joined together in one person it Jesus of Nazareth is not half man half God he's fully God fully man joined together in one person. He is undiminished deity and full humanity joined together in one person. And what did he do? He laid aside what he had a right to as God the Son, became a servant, obeying the Father's command, but also coming and serving our needs. He accomplished for us what none of us could have accomplished for ourselves. We are fallen, sinful descendants of Adam and Eve. We cannot fix that problem. If that problem is going to be fixed, if God's holiness is going to be satisfied, then there's only one who can satisfy that. And that is God the Son becoming fully a man. Not only becoming this, this, the son of the carpenter. Now he's not living in a palace. He's living in the carpenter's house in, in Nazareth. Humble beginning. Who is this Galilean, said the Jewish leadership? He comes in humility and... Then he goes to the cross. The Father sends him to the cross where he pays sin's penalty for us. He does. It would take us an eternity in the lake of fire to pay, and eternity never ends, (laughs) to pay our sin bill. Because of the nature of who Jesus is, and the, the illustration I use is you take a balance scale and you put the entire human race on one side of that balance scale and it goes thunk. 
but you put Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son become flesh, on the other side of that balance scale because of the great value of his person. Thunk. His value, the value of him, is actually greater than the value of the entire human earth. And so he can go to the cross and say, pay sin's penalty for the entire human race. He goes to the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a question that is, is, asked, is asked because he doesn't know. It is an expression of his deep pain and grief as for the first time in all of humanity, God the Father turns away from God the Son and pours out on him. Pours out on him. All of the lake of fire pain that is due to the entire human race for an eternity because of the nature of Jesus' person, he is able to bear that consequence in a few hours' period of time on the cross. Until he, the, of the seven statements Jesus makes from the cross, number six is to telestai, paid in full. And that was an expression used in the court system of Rome. When you were convicted of a series of crimes, they would make out an actual bill of your crimes and the penalty attached to each crime that you had to pay. And when you had paid all these penalties, so much strikes, so many strikes with the rod, so much financial uh, fine or so, many, so much time in the salt mines, whatever it was, when you had paid that crime bill, they would write that same word Jesus cried out from the cross, to Telestai, paid in full. Across that, they would roll up that scroll and hand it to you so you could take it home and nail it to your front door so that you couldn't be harassed by your neighbors. Hey, you know that guy Tom, he's supposed to be in the salt mines. And Tom could take them by the hand and say, and lead them to his house and say, no, you're talking about that crime, paid in full, go away. The Apostle Paul in, second, in Colossians chapter 2 says, God has taken our crime bill, verses 13 and 14. He's taken our crime bill and he nailed it to the cross. And so we can come before God and say, in confidence, Christ paid sin's penalty for me completely and utterly so that all I have to do, if I'm the criminal in the court, in the you know, being discharged from the salt mine, they would write to Telestai across it, roll it up and hand it to me so I could take it home. Well, what if I don't believe it? If I believe that that piece of paper that says to Telestai and I just going to make, what am I going to do? I'm going to have enough faith to reach out my hand and take that scroll and take it home and nail it to my front door. How is it that I step into the kingdom of God. God tells me, my son paid your sin debt. Here, would you like to have this? And my expression of faith is, yes, please. Jesus solved my unsolvable problem for me. Thank you. That's why the scripture says we are justified by faith. My faith is, has to be just enough to reach out. And then he puts the into my hand, into my heart. He accredits to my heavenly record. Okay, he's good. He's, he's now welcome into my presence. The Lamb of God is taken away the sin of the world. That's exactly what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, chapter 5, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and has loosed its seven seals by his suffering. By his obedience to the Father. And what does Jesus say before he's 
before he's ever capped, before he's ever arrested and crucified, he tells the apostles, I am going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be, and I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. And then I will receive king, all the glory of the kingdom. Jesus qualified himself to become the ruler of all things by his act of obedience. And what does he say in Matthew 28 to the apostles? After his resurrection, immediately before his ascension into heaven, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God the Son stepped into, his Father handed off to him his own authority. This is a king handing to his prince. <laughs> okay, I'm handing the, the task of the day-to-day -day running of the empire to you. And that's what Jesus qualified himself for by his submission to the Father's will that carried him through the cross, through the tomb, and out again. <laughs> Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked... And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, perfect power. Again, the number seven is a number of completeness, and a horn is a figure of power. Having seven horns, perfect power. Seven eyes, complete awareness. This is om omnipotence omniscience he's a, nothing is hidden from his eyes the flight of every molecule is in his awareness which are this and the seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god all of the attributes that we would attribute to god the holy spirit are upon the lord jesus there is no distinction by the way the person of god the father the person of god the son we have a god who is three persons. And there is no distinction as far as the nature of their makeup, how they are constituted. There is a distinction in the roles they fill, but not in the nature of their persons. A lamb who has been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he, the lamb, came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He took it. Now, not that the Father didn't willingly give it up to him. He certainly did. But it's interesting, that expression, he took it. Why? Because he had prevailed. He had he'd earned it. If you've earned your paycheck, you don't come up to your boss at the end, you know, when it's payday and say, oh, may I please have my paycheck? No, you just hold out your hand and he puts it in there. You earned it. Jesus earned the scroll. That's going to contrast, by the way, when we get into chapter 6, because the first seal is the white horse rider who is given a kingdom. That's a contrast. Verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, just as they had fallen down before God the Father on the throne, they fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Look at that. We can't charge. You are worthy. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. You know, 
one of the traits of the human race is every nation, every ethnicity wants to find the people that are less than them. <laughs> and yet here is out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, you have redeemed us. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sin of every member of the human race. We all bear the image of, we were created in the image of God. And he has redeemed every single one. This whole idea of, some, of racism or we're the, we're, that is so repugnant to what the scripture says. It really is offensive. <laughs> you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us servants and slaves, no, kings and priests to our God. You have you hived off to us some of your authority. When we come into that kingdom, we're going to be actually exercised sharing your authority with you. You have made us kings and priests. What is a priest? A priest is someone who could walk into the holy presence of God at any time. That's his role. You have made us kings and priests. Adam forfeited our right to rule. Our own vile choices forfeited our right to a welcome in the presence of the Holy God. And you have restored us. We are kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign forever. We shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Can I communicate? It's uncountable. I can't, I mean, the crowd is still going beyond the, <laughs> my eyesight. Jesus didn't just redeem a handful. He solve the problem for an uncountable multitude of people. Thousands upon thousands. 10,000 times 10,000, and oh, let me not stop there, thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. All of the wor worship that the Father who sits on the throne is worthy of, likewise the Lamb is worthy of the same measure of worship. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, may it be so. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And Jesus came out of that tomb to live forever and ever. And here they are, what we saw in chapter 4 of their worship before the Father seated on the throne, we see that replicated here as they fall in worship before the feet of the Lamb. We're going to call a halt here and uh, pick up with the seals next week in chapter 6. Any questions or comments before we conclude? Let's, let's pray. Our Lord, uh, we do thank you for this revelation of Jesus Christ, which you gave to your servant John, who, who wrote it down, and now it's been passed down into our hands. We ask that that same 
insistence on worshiping you would lay hold of our spirits that we might replicate these worshipers as that we too would fall down and worship you and give you all the glory and offer ourselves to you. And Lord, we thank you that you have in fact made us kings and priests. Those with an unrestrained welcome into your presence before your God and Father. We give you all the praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.